Have you ever been out there and seen some idiot soloing and thought, that's dangerous? Well, no shit, Sherlock. Life's an inherently dangerous sport. And we're going to talk about that across several different ways today. So throw your rope in the closet where it belongs and grab a chalk bag for your sweaty, sweaty palms. Because the process is about to begin. That's dangerous, they said. Yeah, climbing's inherently dangerous. Look, it's posted over next to the bouldering, right there on that sign. But didn't you bring a crash pad or something? Nope. But why not? What exactly do you think a crash pad is going to do from up there? Hmm. All right. You've got a point. But still, what if you fall? Well, I'm pretty sure the answer to that's relatively obvious. Not really much that can be done for a 300-foot drop, now is there? Well, aren't you scared? <laughs> of course not. Think of it this way. If I was scared, I probably wouldn't be doing it. After all, I'm not really a lunatic. I just play one online. It seems I have this conversation a few times every month, and I'm starting to get pre-rehearsed in my responses now. With this whole speed record on the nose thing, I had to be a bit more active and crusty than usual on internet forums. Folks just don't seem to get it, which is understandable if I'm being fair. Pretty far out there. But it doesn't quite justify the pushback from the comment threads. They know it's dangerous. They understand it's dangerous, but they put a lot of tactics, practice, and training into mitigating that danger as best as can be done considering their goal. That's something which we all practice, or at least that we should all practice every time that we go out. I used to think cl uh, speed climbing was fucked up. It just seemed so much more sketchy than soloing to me. And the idea of moving deliberately fast was utterly anathema in my world. Now that I understand the systems better, that opinion has shifted a great deal. It's incredible how your assessment of risk alters when you know a little more about the systems and the training involved. Now, I'm not here to tell you that speed climbing is the way, or that you need to try it, but I think that, uh, you know, events lately offer us an excellent opportunity for learning as a community by investigating the way that we discuss risk and how often we don't. Ultimately, speed climbing isn't much different than soloing. Other than that, you have gear to plug in if you're suddenly not into it. On second thought, perhaps that's exactly why there's been such an outcry from everyone but me. I always thought that fact was obvious. When it comes to speed, we sit down and think hard about risk. I say we, 
because I'm not just a soloist. I dabble a smidgen in speed climbing, too. There's something satisfying about the fact that a 500-foot wall used to take me all day, and now I can tackle 500 or 1,700 feet in three and a half hours with time for a nice breakfast beforehand. Shout out to Mountain Man Dan for that great morning on Royal Arches. Alternatively, I could run two laps on the 700-foot face of Whiteside Mountain as a quick day trip from Atlanta. Thanks to Evan Rains for that one. Really appreciate that you recruited me for it. And that feels a lot more free and easy compared to bivying nearby to get an alpine start for the sake of one single route and facing the fear of wondering whether we'd have enough daylight to top out without headlamps, as we'd have uh, done in the past. Sometimes, I still like to slow down and enjoy the view, marinate in the climb, but there is something about being able to complete two of my favorite climbs instead of just one that's really fun. Sometimes, too, I project and spend all day working on a single climb. When we climb, we have to follow wherever the mojo leads us, and that's something different for each person, and each objective, and each day. There's a time and place for everything if you're stoked about it. And that's the key, right? Climbing is supposed to be fun. When I see Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell sprinting up the nozzle, they have the hugest smiles on their faces. And it doesn't look to me like they're having a competitive death race. It looks like the world's best free soloist and the world's best big wall free climber are teaming up for a fun day and a quest for curiosity. Hey, I wonder if we could go sub too. I mean, look at those guys. When you see the photos, they just look so happy to be sharing a fun day of climbing together. And I think that's it. They're not really out there to beat anyone. They're climbing for the sake of it. There's a goal out there, and they're curious about whether they can do it or not. It's rather like your first lead climb. It's a challenge, and you want to achieve it. You think it'll go, so you train to handle it. But you don't know until you really try. We all know someone who's tried a large objective and been shut down because they got in over their head. It happens. It's part of playing the game in the mountains. If you look at it one way, they took a risk, and they got shut down because they were over their head. But they learned something. And that's hugely valuable. But it's also a risk. Every single rock climber is an unnecessary risk taker. It's not like we have to go up there in search of food and a paycheck. So who are we to judge? We pick lines, push grades, and sometimes wind up run out much farther above our last piece of gear than we had planned on by complete accident. On the other hand, these guys on the nose deliberately chose the risk that they were facing. The runouts they took on were thoughtful, deliberate, and rehearsed. They didn't have to ask something like, shouldn't you have brought a crash pad? They understand the risk in a very deep, broad, and intuitive manner. That's how they can prepare for it. It's easy to say that it looks dangerous. But how did they prepare 
to handle a situation like this. That's what I see missing from the internet comment machine and the media coverage. Just like the story of Honold soloing Freerider, there is risk involved. Obviously. Climbing is inherently dangerous. If you've ever signed the waiver at a climbing gym or perused the pages of a guidebook, this is something you've been asked to acknowledge in large, bold letters. But how often do you personally sit down and think about risk? How many times have we seen folks deck at the gym or come damn close because they were just thoughtless? There was nothing thoughtless about this incent. Not only did Tommy spend countless hours and laps practicing for the goal, but they also obtained the advice of previous record holders on how to better their tactics. The atmosphere wasn't competitive, but rather collaborative, with Hans Florin, Jim Reynolds, and Brad Gobright not just cheering them on, but telling them how to improve and utterly smash the rector record without behaving in a manner that was too dangerous. That's the thing. Climbing is inherently dangerous. But when does it become too dangerous? Tommy and Alex didn't seem overly competitive to me. But some folks definitely are. They get hung up on something that they really want to do. And they want it badly. As opposed to just seeing like, hey, I wonder what I can do. That wanting can lead to risks that are over your normal tolerance. You think, eh, I'm just doing it this one time, I'll probably be fine. Probably. But you might not. Probably. Should. These are words of danger in climbing. This shouldn't be a big deal. Means it very much could be. Probably acknowledges the fact that you might not because you haven't prepared well enough for the word surely. Probably is probability. You don't want probability. Danger is the combination of two things blended together, risk and consequence. When the blend of those things goes past the threshold, what your abilities can rein into surety you're over the line. If I'm dialing in a solo or on-sighting a solo, I think I can probably nail that. <laughs> I probably won't screw that up enough to matter. Or maybe it's a bit more subtle, where I'm thinking probably beforehand, man, I can probably nail this move, and then smack, I nail it so well. And I think, oh yeah, what the fuck was my problem? I'd totally nail that. But it's only in retrospect, after the doing. Those are the situations where I have to pull the plug and put the kibosh on the whole thing. And that's when it crosses the line from mitigated risk to outright danger.
Let's talk about risk for a moment. When does climbing become too dangerous? Risk is not the same as consequence. The ultimate worst case scenario of climbing is death. Doesn't matter whether you're soloing, speed climbing, trad climbing, sport clipping, bouldering, or top roping. If you make a big enough mistake, you will die. There is nothing inherently safe about a human dangling from a cord 100 feet off the ground. Risk is not consequence, but rather risk is the likelihood that you will meet with the various negative consequences of failure. Climbing truly is inherently dangerous, but we have ways of mitigating that danger. It can be made safe enough if we apply proper preparation and understanding to our goal. And that goes for bouldering, top rope, sport, trad, aid, big wall, speed, and soloing. The only difference for each of those differences is the sort of preparations that you make to create an atmosphere which is safe enough. Safe enough, mind you. It's never fully safe. But understanding that, and the truth that every climb is different, can go a long way to keeping you out of trouble. Maybe that's why we had such an outcry about speed climbing. It's unfamiliar. It's way out there. And just like Honnold's ascent of Freerider, folks don't understand the steps and preparation. So all they see is consequence, and they assume that the risk is high because they don't understand the steps which can be taken to mitigate that risk. They imagine themselves up there. And if they were up there, my, would it be risky indeed. Though, risk becomes higher as you move faster, because it means moving less controlled than you usually would. Speed climbing means you have to be able to nail that move even if you're less deliberate with your movement than you normally would be. In that way, you could say it has a higher bar for necessary margin than soloing. Maybe that's something we haven't acknowledged as a community that this actually requires more preparation than soloing in the regions that are less protected. I see a lot of folks chiming in with the comment, these guys are basically free soloing with a rope. On the one hand, this is so demonstrably false that it boggles the mind. The statement defies logic. There's a huge difference between having gear and not needing it versus not having it at all and flying forward with heedless velocity. Case in point, Tommy took a 100-foot whipper on a training run, and he only had a few minor scratches. And that tells me a lot about the safety which they employ on the route. You don't get to take whippers when you're soloing. For sure, there are stretches where the consequences would be grave if they fell. And right there, yeah, they basically are soloing. But that stretch ends eventually. And they take the climbing more carefully on those. If there's a move, they throw gear in to protect it. These guys are running it out and locking horns with dangerous climbing. However, they have a rope. They have gear. And they can choose to put more gear in the wall if something goes wrong and they need to rein it in. But you really do need a high level of self-awareness and bodily awareness to understand 
when you've gone off the deep end and you need to pull it back. you have ever opted to climb to the first bolt of a sport route without a stick clip, you've engaged in making a choice based on expediency over safety. You chose a higher consequence method when safer options are available. You were basically soloing with a rope right until you clipped the first bolt. You said to yourself, it's okay because I'm not going to fall. We already have a name for the type of climbing where it's okay if you're not going to fall. It's called soloing. And that thought is the thought which folks criticize on these ascents, despite the fact that we've all said it at some point or another. Everybody says it. It's fine. I'm not going to fall here. That was a risk where someone could argue that you were basically soloing if we take that notion of soloing with a rope to its ultimate extreme. A little bit hyperbolic, but you get the idea. We made a calculation. We knew the climbing was within our ability and control. We knew as long as we were careful, we'd be okay. That calculation is the most important thing we can learn as climbers. The only safety any of us have lies in our ability to make competent decisions. We do this based on the consequences we see, the abilities we have, and the difficulties in our path. As long as the choices we make are commensurate with the skills we take, then we're being safe enough. Speaking of safe enough, we know that there is no such thing as a perfect anchor. Every anchor could be made more solid by adding more and more and more pieces, but at a certain point, we have to estimate that it is safe enough so that we don't spend an hour building each anchor and run out of time to actually climb. It doesn't need to hold your truck. It just needs to hold you. Safe enough is a familiar game to anyone who's really sat down and thought about the dangers of climbing. Have you been to the Red? Have you seen the rust? Have you seen the mank that the fixed gear initiative pulls out of the wall when they go on a rebolting mission? But you said it was safe enough. Right up until you were horrified by the pictures of its condition when it was removed from the wall. I see a lot of hand-wringing that these ascents will inspire folks to play copycat and run like lemmings to the cliffs we enjoy, only to fall and die. But that didn't happen in the late 90s and early 2000s when speed-climbing rivalries were red-hot and the competition was high. So why would that suddenly happen now? If there is any surge of speed climbers, I'd say it's due to the availability of information and the improvement of gear. If you want to know how to simul climb, you can Google it. Unfortunately, that won't tell you if you're ready. That's why I wrote this piece. And that's why we need to have frank discussions of the process.
We don't talk process often enough in the influencer, promoter, sponsorship world of Instagram and social media. As with soloing, you could say there is not a right way to speed climb. Well, there certainly are some wrong ways. And if the universe decides your number is up, game over, man. So if we're really so worried about the risk of copycats, why don't we cover the preparation more heavily? With risk often comes glory in the minds of the foolhardy, but if we talk on that preparation, folks will understand better whether it's a bad idea for them to try, and that's an incredibly valuable lesson. I'm not a fan of the vilification of risk, but I'm also not a fan of clickbait titles and the glorification of risk either. There's a middle way. I feel both of those achieve the same goal. You vilify risk, the foolhardy like it. You tell them it's gloryful, they like it. Risk is glory. Preparation isn't. Talking process? That's something which can actually reduce the number of copycats. Glory is exciting, but training process and preparation are quite boring to the foolhardy. So if you tell them that that's necessary for this game, they're going to be a lot less interested. When folks say, that's dangerous, I worry for their safety. It's obvious that it's dangerous because all of climbing is dangerous, and if you're wondering whether it's dangerous, then you're asking the wrong questions and avoiding engagement and critical thinking. It's dangerous. There. I'm done thinking. How many times have we seen folks just go for it when they get their first trad rack and start climbing without finding peers or a professional to guide them? When the skills you possess are less than the challenge you have chosen, that's when the risk begins to escalate to unacceptable levels. Now, that's dangerous. But we knew that already, right? You didn't learn anything when I said that. Now, Jerry is heading off with three hexes and a tricam because he's even more determined to prove us wrong. And the same could happen with speed climbing just as easily. When average folks set an average time, nobody worries. When advanced parties set a fast time, Nobody worries. So why do we suddenly worry when the world's best big wall climbers set the world's best time? And why do we worry sud suddenly now when nobody was worried about Honnold's speed solo of Lover's Leap? He ran out the whole climb without any gear whatsoever. He might as well have been soloing without a... Oh wait, he was. To me, it just seems logical. They have the most advanced skill set so they can control and mitigate risks that we can't. Instead of teaching, that's dangerous, and drawing a line in the sand which tells folk, 
it's okay to stop thinking right here. Instead of that, what if we thought long and hard about the skills and the challenges that we, our peers, and the climbers we look up to truly face? There's an excellent opportunity for learning here, and it would be a shame if we missed out on it. Even if speed climbing is pretty far out there, there are still universal lessons that we can internalize and bring back to our own climbing to make us a bit safer. But to do that, we have to think about danger. Thinking about danger might be uncomfortable, but that's only because learning might be uncomfortable. Discomfort is the feeling of learning. I suppose that should be expected since we only learn and grow outside of our comfort zone. That discomfort is the very feeling of learning itself, and I think that's a lot more valuable and substantive than screaming, that's dangerous in the hopes of getting a few Facebook likes or a bit of Reddit karma while your peers affirm your already established and entrenched mindset. Ultimately, that's why I lay out my logic on this podcast and this blog, and why I engage folks who disagree with soloing on the internet. I want them to make me feel uncomfortable and challenge my assertions so that I can think critically about the climbing that I do. I think that's intrinsically essential to my survival. I think we should all feel that way. Thinking critically about your climbing and your motivations is intrinsically essential to your continued survival. So please understand, if it seems like I'm firing back at you at the internet forums or in the comment thread of my own Instagram, I don't have anything against you in particular. I just find it valuable to take a long, hard look in the mirror when it comes to the way we think of and engage risk. Because one of us is going to learn. Might be me. The mirror is all the more clear when speaking to those who disagree with me. Wouldn't want an infinite feedback loop of self-affirmation. I find it valuable to take a long, hard look in the mirror when it comes to the way we think of and engage in risk. Now, if I step over the line and act rude, please call me out. Sometimes I do go on a manic rampage. Yeah, we'll adjust my meds for that, but you know, sometimes the mix is off, maybe too much coffee or something, and I'm going manic, and you know, call me out. I'm aware that I go off the rails sometimes, but I'm not always aware of when I'm doing it in a social context. So uh, I appreciate the call-out, and I'll apologize, because ultimately that asinine behavior stifles discussion. Discussion keeps us all alive and safe. I reckon if I can't come up with an answer to your inquiry or pushback that resonates with the truth within me, and that's a signal that I need to edit my process because I've fucked something up. A wise man once told me, be safe out there. But if you can't do that, be careful. And I think that's the ultimate take on this. Obviously, 
this is a topic which our community holds as a great concern, but it's not the topic of speed climbing our community is having an evolving dialogue about. It's the notion of risk and danger and what's acceptable. And it's good to think about that. And this raises the question, what can we do about it? And what has changed that this has crept up and bloomed so suddenly, it seems? For sure, risk has always been an important point of discussion, but the pushback against it so thoroughly seems to be a new phenomenon. Maybe it's just the internet. Maybe it's something in the air. Maybe it's something more interesting. For one thing, with those of us who write, we need to speak thoughtfully of danger. And I don't just mean blogs, I mean people writing on the internet, in the comments section. We need to speak more thoughtfully of danger, what the parties involved felt, and how they got to that point. People die climbing. It's important to realize that and remember it. You have to stop and think about that for a moment when pushing forward into the unknown. Tommy thought heavily on that during his ascent. A pair of speed climbers who were heavily, exper heavily experienced, widely regarded within the climbing community, died only days before their record. I think about it every time I prepare for a new solo. Some of my heroes are dead. Not all of them. Otherwise, I'd be rethinking my life choices. But some of them. Anyone who intends to stay safe really needs to marinate in that thought from time to time. I know it's not comfortable, but personal growth rarely is. In an article for Outside Magazine, Kelly Cordes wrote that while anyone who climbs an El Capitan in a single day is elite, Tommy and Alex are among the most skilled pair to ever tie in together in Yosemite's Mecca. They have honed their approach on the nose to balance the risk. Quinn fell from high on the boot flake, a spot everyone who speed climbs the route knows is dangerous, because many parties opt for a huge runout to save time for the follower. Tommy devised an ingenious solution that allows him to protect that section without slowing down the team. On the hardest technical sections, which come when Alex is leading, they've synchronized their timing so that Tommy has him on a real belay. How's that for mitigating risk? What if we threw that all over the internet instead of brandishing such statements as these guys are basically soloing with a rope? Maybe then, up-and-coming up climbers would recognize that there's more to this than just soloing with a rope and risking your life with reckless abandon. It would be obvious that there's a great deal of preparation involved which needs to be respected. Take myself, for instance. When I first started soloing, things got a little bit sketchy, as I talked on about the episode uh, The Only Blasphemy. Watching videos where Mike Reardon talks about his process and preparation and the notion of when it's right and when you need to back down, that has always stuck in my brain and guided my climbing so that the wisdom of knowing when to back off is something I pride just as much as the actual ascents. Coverage of Mike's soloing 
It didn't inspire me to solo, I was already doing that, but rather it guided me down a safer way that involved a measure of sanity and safety that was missing from my earlier attempts. Speaking of proper coverage of preparation, folks, I've seen comments that Tommy only brought six pieces for the start of the route, but he didn't ascend the first half of the route with only six pieces. The truth is that he only placed six cams. However, there are bolts, anchors, fixed pieces of gear that he did clip into. The first rule of speed climbing, uh, the first rule of climbing, take care of your follower. In simul-climbing, that means to have at least two to three pieces between you and your partner as sort of a moving belay anchor. If it's bolts, you can go down to two. If it's gear, you want at least three. Simul-climbers are usually 70 to 120 feet apart. That means a maximum average spacing of 30 to 40 feet. Six pieces of gear in the first third, that's a thousand feet, would mean one piece every 250 feet, and the amount of rope between them is much shorter than that. It's mathematically ludicrous to state that they only put six pieces in, because then there would have been no point to having the rope at all. To quote Kelly Cordes, they made it safe for them, which may not be safe for others. It probably isn't. And that's the point I'm getting at here. They did what was appropriate for their skill level, which isn't appropriate for me, or most likely for you either. And there are likely skills that you have which allow you to do things that aren't safe for me. But that doesn't make it anathema for you. The key thing to understand is this. Did they feel like they were pushing it? Regarding their previous run of 2 hours, 1 minute, 50 seconds, Tommy Caldwell said, That's a thing. It doesn't. We did a slow lap yesterday, just reevaluating everything, working the bottom section to dial it in, and it actually felt really safe. Even when we topped out today, it didn't feel out of control at all. We got a rope stuck, but that's it. I truly feel like we've been analyzing every situation and making it safe. Any asshole can get lucky once. The second time's a solo. When it comes to sketchy endeavors, if you're not absolutely sure you could repeat it, then you got away with it. And you can only get away with so much. About the record lap, he stated, It felt great, really. We did everything the same as before in terms of safety, and it always felt okay. But even so, Tommy says he's done with speed records now, and that he's satisfied. And I think that's appropriate. Everybody has to make their own call. They did everything they could think of to make it safe enough. And if they pushed it further by editing things, then it wouldn't be. As a rule in my own soloing or when I face dangerous climbing, there are three zones I look at. Great. Okay. And you need to think long and hard about why that felt shitty. Okay is about as bad as you want it to feel. I mean, really, you want it to feel great. And that means feeling okay is the safety margin that keeps you away from a bad situation. If it just felt okay, 
And that means it's about as far as you can push it safely. I think of it like the tachometer in your car. If you redline the motor, you're going to blow it. If you live in the little band of yellow before the red line, then any mistake will put you over the edge. But if you live in the green, sometimes you'll wind up in the yellow by accident, but that's manageable and you can reel it back in. It informs you of when it's time to hang up your hat and bail. So what do we do to combat this notion of unacceptable risk you know, as a community? Mentorship. It's the one thing that the old crusties bemoan the most. Kids these days, growing up with no mentors, learning everything from the internet. Why don't we use the internet to mentor? Instead of getting on the comment thread ready to blast out with, How dare they? That's so dangerous. He only put six pieces in. Why not gain the facts of the situation and comment in a manner designed to educate and inform your fellow climbers? If you want to practice, head over to Reddit. Every Friday they have a new climbers thread where folks are encouraged to be vulnerable and ask questions that they have about climbing. So grab your keyboard and join me over there every Friday. Let's really put out some good information that can help people instead of just brandishing judgment. And that's what climbing needs now more than ever. Thoughtful mentorship. Sure, there might be a little surge of recklessness in climbing because there's access to information through the internet and that makes it easier than ever to get in over your head, but... <laughs> I listened to the stories of the guys that came before us and how they learned how to use gear by wedging it in cracks and jumping off because there was no information. I'd rather learn from the internet than learn that way. But the internet can be the solution just as much as it can be the problem. Now it's easier than ever to ask a question of your peers and have it thoughtfully answered, as long as they're willing. As to information's effect on our community, it's a sliding continuum, and it can fall anywhere from immensely positive to immensely negative. Ultimately, whether this case of information is a solution or a problem on any given day, well, that's up to you, my friend. Alright folks, don't forget to share the show. Tell people about it. Get the word out there. Um, let's make it grow a little bit. If you like what you're hearing, you think it's helpful, other people might too. Or they might cuss me out in the comment thread. Yeah, either way, I'm going to have a little bit of fun. So, you know, yeah, put it up in the doobly-doo, like me on Facebook, follow me on Instagram, downvote me on Reddit. Downvotes are way more fun, right? Uh, fuck it, share me on Reddit. Or wherever else. Because this thing, it doesn't have anything to do with big climbing. No, this is underground. It's just me and you. I'm buying my own shoes, too. I've got three different brands because I have zero fucks to give. So this, no, it's nowhere near big climbing. In fact, you could be 
teaching your friend at the Devil's Lake how to lead climb. I mean, trying to show a good example by sending a root and lowering off to clean it, only to realize that your dumbass forgot the nut tool. And there isn't one on the ground either because you left it all the fucking way back at home. Huh, how are you gonna get these nuts out of here? Ooh, and your buddy remembers, hey, I packed a spoon for lunch. So you take that metal spoon and you start whacking it up and down in the crack trying to wedge this nut out and finally, it pops free. What a Gumby mistake. And you still wouldn't be as far away from big climbing as this is.